Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversales.com. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 26. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem and went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods to the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for the nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and scribes heard it and started looking for ways to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your wrongdoing. And some translations continue, But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your wrongdoing. May God's word transform our hearts this morning. Now this might come as a surprise to you, but not everyone that claims to be a Christian is actually a Christian. (gasps) Okay, maybe it's not a shock to you. (laughs) I have met, and you probably have too, far too many people who claim to be Christians who were they were missing something. You can see in their discomfort with the worship, they might have no desire to see the lost saved, they never talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, or they're just lacking in joy. Something is just off about them. There's no doubt that we've all known good church-going people that have caused us to wonder about their faith. In our text this morning, it's not one about examining the faith of someone else. It's about examining ourselves. As I was preparing this sermon this week, my mind kept coming back to a passage that has troubled me over the years. That passage is 2 Corinthians Chapter 13 and verse 5. It says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. 
Some translations finish with, unless you're disqualified or unless you are counterfeit. And so the question that Paul is posing, and I think that our text is kind of has as its underlying question is, are you a Christian? That's what Paul is challenging those who call themselves believers to do, to examine themselves and ask, are you a Christian? Am I a Christian? Not just to test their actions, but to test their motives, to look deep into their own hearts. He wants them to see if they are in Christ and if Christ is in them. Are you a Christian? Many people will point to some event in the past in order to help ease their minds. I've known many people who walked an aisle, got dunked in water, grew up in the church, knew all the right answers to all of the questions, but their hearts were far from God. They talk about those past events. Well, I knocked on their door. Hey, you go to church anymore? Well, I used to go here. Well, you have a relationship with Jesus? Well, back when I was seven, I was at a vacation Bible school, and it was outside that year underneath of a big tent because it was really hot. And I remember that, uh, you know, I talked to the pastor, and he dumped me in some water, and yeah, yeah, I'm good. It's an outward show. And those outward showings are not proof that someone is genuinely saved. They've been transformed in their hearts. And so Paul calls for us to examine ourselves, to prove ourselves. And he wouldn't have said it that way if a past event were an obvious answer. He asked them to examine themselves. They could have gone, oh yeah, remember when you were here a few years ago, all of us did those good things? The verbs that he used are present tense verbs. Examine yourself today. And the truth is, is that there's nowhere in the Bible that someone proves their faith by only looking to the past. They do it by looking at the present. Am I living for God? Am I obeying His will? And our passage this morning will cause you to do some of that kind of self-examination. Mark, Mark is using his patented sandwich-telling, storytelling method here in this passage, where he starts one story and then he interrupts it with another story, and he comes back and he finishes it in the end. And so the fig tree incident sandwiches the temple incident. And each time Mark does this, it's because both stories are connected. And so to understand one of the stories, you have to be able to understand both of the stories. They must be interpreted together. Truthfully, I would... I would love to have preached two different ones, one on the fig tree and one on the temple, but they go together. I can't split them apart. We have to understand them together. And now usually I wait until the end of the sermon to give the punchline, um, but I want to make sure that we're framing our text correctly this morning. So I'm going to begin with the punchline, and that is that Jesus will teach that there's no room for those who are all show and no substance. Those who are all talk and no action. Those who wear all the leather, leather but have no motorcycle. Or those that have a big hat but no cattle. I found that one this week. I thought it was funny. So it's really funny. <laughs> I divide my sermon into three or four parts.
advertising, fake religion, true faith, and true forgiveness. And before we dive into that first point, let me provide some context. Jesus has just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And after entering the city, he goes to the temple. And that temple had begun to be built in 19 B.C. And it would not be completely finished until 64 A.D. Sadly, six years later, the temple would be destroyed by Titus whenever they sacked Jerusalem. But this event of the fig tree and the temple is going to kick off a series of events and lessons that continues all the way through chapter 13. They all take place in or around the temple. And they begin here with the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, and it ends with a prophecy about the temple's destruction. In this passage, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Peter will say about the temple in chapter 13, verse 1, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. To which Jesus will respond, Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. A prophecy about the destruction of the temple that would happen some years later. The last time that we saw Jesus, he was looking around at everything in the temple. And since it was late in the day, he went back home. Everyone would find out the very next day that Jesus did not like what he saw when he was at the temple. The place that was supposed to be the house of God, a place that was supposed to be a light to the nations, had been turned into a den of robbers, a hideout for religious outlaws. Everything was not okay. And Jesus would make that abundantly clear. So let's begin by looking at false advertising. Have you ever been the victim of false advertising? Two. All right. I guess the rest of you aren't, you know, suckers like the rest of us. <laughs> false advertising is when a company makes a claim about their product that is not true. I remember late one night, I couldn't sleep, put the television on, infomercial. So one of those things that's supposed to like set on your on your countertop and cook food faster or something like that and, and draw the fat out. And it said it would replace all of these other kitchen, you know, appliances. And there's a huge pile of kitchen appliances. And in that pile, there was a blender. And I thought to myself, how on earth is this thing going to replace my blender? So I called and asked. And I said, how does this replace my blender? They're like, what are you talking about? This thing's got food. And I go, on the infomercial, it says it'll replace all of these appliances. And there's a blender in the middle of them. And they're like, well, it's not going to replace your blender. And I'm like, okay. I didn't buy it. I wasn't planning on buying it anyway, but I just thought, what? That's some false advertising. Now, let me tell you about a time that I was bamboozled by some false advertising. I've suckered in to the biggest advertise, false advertising scam that has ever been perpetrated in our world, and that is that Diet Coke tastes the same as regular Coke. <laughs> it does not. It is not the real thing. Okay? <laughs> well, the day after the triumphal entry, Jesus goes and visits the temple. His, he and his disciples, they leave Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem, to head back 
um, toward the temple. And Mark lets us know that Jesus was hungry. And I just want to pause for a moment. This isn't the main point of the passage, but it's an important point. And that is that mentioning that Jesus was hungry shows that he was human. He was not only God, but he was God in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. Hunger pains wrapped him that morning. And so your stomachs might be feeling a little growly right now. Jesus knows what that feels like. And he knows all the other things that he goes through too and how they feel as well. Again, not the, not the main point of the text, but an important point in the text. In the distance, Jesus spots a fig tree. And by the way, this is probably one of the most misunderstood miracles in the gospel. Jesus spots this fig tree, but it's not just any fig tree. It was a fig tree with leaves. Now verse 12 tells us that it was not the season for figs. However, some fig trees would leaf out early. And if they did, and they had leaves, the way that fig trees work, as I've read this week, is that if there's leaves, then there should be something edible on the tree. So there should have been these little green early fig fruits. They weren't as juicy, and they weren't as sweet as figs, but they were edible, and they would temporarily satisfy your hunger. So when it says Jesus is hungry, and he sees a fig tree with leaves on it, he thinks, oh, I'll just grab a few figs, early figs. You know, early in the season, I'll, I'll eat those, and I'll be okay. And so when he approaches the tree, he expected to find that fruit. But what he found was while there were leaves, and the leaves were advertising one thing, that small fruit would be there, there was nothing on the tree. Nothing but leaves. So it was a hypocritical fig tree. The leaves, how it looked from the outside, said, Come here, I have fruit. It will satisfy your hunger. But upon closer inspection, you find out that you've been deceived. A show with no substance. It was a it was all substance and 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 or it was all show with no substance, all talk and no action. It was a big hat with no cattle and leather with no motorcycle. You're promised one thing, but it produced nothing. And you'll never be able to satisfy your needs. So what does Jesus do? He curses the tree. Curses the fig tree. He sees its deception and says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And this is where the misunderstanding comes in. Some of my favorite commentators, I think, got this wrong. Because they'll say things like, Well, that was harsh of Jesus to curse the tree. What did that tree ever do to him? Or anyone, for that matter. Couldn't Jesus, Jesus have just used that same power that cursed and withered the tree to just make it produce fruit right away? You know, this is the only miracle that's a destructive miracle in the New Testament. All of these thoughts miss the point of the passage, though, because they're not taking into consideration the larger picture that is being painted about what is going on. The fig tree is an object lesson. It's a living parable. What does the fig tree represent? That's the question that we should be asking. If you look up the word fig tree in your Bible, it becomes very clear very quickly. 
And we don't have time to go through every single one, so you have to kind of trust me now and then look it up later, okay? The great prophets of the Old Testament describe Israel as a vine, either an olive or grape, and as a fig tree. And the imagery continues into the New Testament. I'll give you just one example, or a couple examples. First one's in Hosea chapter 9, verse 12. It says, I discovered Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your ancestors like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season. That's similar imagery to what Jesus was describing, right? That first fruit of the season. And it's possible that Jesus, who probably had the entire Old Testament memorized, seeing that there was no figs, was reminded of Micah chapter 7, verse 1, which says, How sad for me, for I am like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered after the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape clusters to eat, no early fig, which I crave. The passage goes on to describe the fruit was faithful people. And the faithfulness of the people is the fruit. And he could not find any fruit. He could not find any faithful. They looked good, but their hearts were intent on evil. And so this fig tree that looked good on the outside but was empty of its fruit begins to become a picture of the temple. And I think that when Mark says that Jesus' disciples heard it, that he, they heard him curse the fig tree, I think that's a key, a, a marker for us to know that there's more going on than Jesus being hangry. You all know what hangry is, right? When you're hungry, it makes you angry, and you're grumpy until you get something to eat. Some people think that's what's happening with Jesus. He was just hangry, so he cursed the tree. But he said it so that his disciples would hear it, and that's a clue for us. Because instead of Jesus being hangry, he was using the tree to teach an important lesson to his followers. And we'll see that more clearly as he enters into the temple. But this is a preview of what will come. Israel, the fig tree, was claiming to be one thing, but was actually something else altogether. They were supposed to be faithful, but no fruit was found. They were putting on a show, but they weren't producing anything. And this is Jesus' commentary and judgment on empty religion. Jesus curses that which puts on a show but does not produce. Of course, this passage is talking about a fig tree and about, and about the temple and about the people of Israel. But I think that we should ask ourselves a question as well. Am I all show with no substance? When people look at my life and they see my good works because I'm trying to get them to see those so that they won't see that I'm really empty and devoid of Christ on the inside. And then a follow-up question to that, what does Jesus think about it? And I all show with no substance, and what does Jesus think about that? Sadly, this is what Israel had become, especially the temple, and its religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, who oversaw all of its operations. Here was a people that gave an outward and visible appearance of great spirituality and devotion to God, but upon closer inspection, they were exposed as hypocrites. Gentiles were denied the opportunity to come close to God 
being restricted to the outer courts and subjected to the religious swap meet. The poor were exploited by money changers and merchants. The temple culture had grown big and impressive, but it was all a sham, all show, no substance. There was no gospel, and no God to be found for those who were needing salvation. So there's this false advertising of the tree which points to the fake religion in the temple in verses 15 through 19. We call these verses the cleansing of the temple, but it's likely that the actions of Jesus only caused a temporary disruption. They probably collected all their coins and called back their pigeons and got their chairs flipped the right way and went right back to what they were doing before before, you know, Jesus had been there, after he left. So what's the point of all of this? Some people say, oh, he's trying to reform the temple, but again, they went right back after he left to doing the same things. But I believe it's a continuation of the fig tree lesson. It's Jesus' evaluation and judgment on this fake religion that had taken over the temple of God. They took what was supposed to be a place for people to worship, and they made it into a den of thieves. And he was teaching them that lesson. I realize for us that the temple doesn't mean much. You know, we, we think about the temple and go, oh yeah, you know, whatever. But for the first century Jews, the temple meant everything. It was everything to them. It was the heart of Israel's religious life. It was a symbol of their national identity. The temple complex was huge. Where Jesus would have entered is called the Court of the Gentiles, and it was 35 acres in size. Up on this picture, the Court of the Gentiles is everything that's inside that outer wall. That's the Court of the Gentiles. That's where Jesus would have gone. That's where they were selling these animals and exchanging this money. The temple had different areas, and as you got closer to the Holy of Holies, more and more people were restricted access. And so you have the court of the Gentiles, anyone can enter there. And you have the court of the women, and then the court of the men, and then the place where the priests could go to make the sacrifices. And then you have the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And each one of them was higher up on the mountain, signifying that you're getting closer and closer to God. And at each of those set of steps was a pillar, and inscribed on each of those pillars was a sign that said, Basically, if you're not the right person to go into this area, then your blood is on your own hands. And they meant it. And they had temple guards that would enforce it. But anyone could enter the court of the Gentiles. It was supposed to be a place for prayer for all nations. But when Jesus arrived, he didn't find people praying. He found a swap meet. There were vendors and people who were using the sacred area as a shortcut to get from one side of the temple to the other without having to go around the long way. There was no reverence. And when you approached the temple and you looked at this incredible structure, it promised peace. It promised the presence of God. It promised a place to pray, a place to worship, a place to be forgiven of your sins. But when you entered into it, it was all chaos. I imagine it was like the uh, Jacob's Cave Swami. Just people everywhere, chaos ensuing. Every Israelite that came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover was required to make a sacrifice. 
And so the vendors were selling the animals for that very purpose. Because the sacrifice had to be acceptable, had to be perfect, and had to pass a religious inspection. And so most people chose, well, they were really forced to buy an animal that was approved at the temple. The issue was that the religious leaders were price gouging. Some estimate that they were marking up 16 times more than the regular going price. So for instance, it mentions uh, pigeons. Normally, let's say, pigeons sold for 25 cents per pair. Well, they were charging $4. It's kind of like when you go to a baseball game and a hot dog, which would normally cost you like a nickel, costs you five bucks, right? They were price gouging. The temple tax, it had to be paid for using a specific currency. And so the money changers would exchange your foreign currency for the correct currency so you could pay your temple tax, but they would, they would charge you an outrageous exchange rate. Think about exchanging money at an airport, and that's what's going on here. Everywhere you looked, there was extortion, there was bribery, there was greed and dishonesty. And Jesus, frankly, he had had enough of it. His righteous rage turns to physical a uh, physical outburst, and he cleaned the house. For a moment, Jesus restored the temple of God to its rightful purpose. Pagan religion that promised one thing but couldn't deliver, it seems like that's especially offensive to God. I mean, Jesus flipped the table. John tells us he made a whip and he was whipping out of there. And so the next time someone's mocking you and they're like, well, what did Jesus do? Just remind them that he flipped the tables over the temple and whipped people. So that is an option. Take religion is offensive to God and he won't let it go on forever. It's no wonder that Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, about these same leaders that Isaiah prophesied correctly about those hypocrites. It is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. And here, Jesus quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah both. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. You see, the temple was supposed to be a place of worship. It was supposed to be a place of prayer for all people, for all nations. But they had been restricting those who they saw as unworthy, and even being more restrictive than was necessary. Jesus is teaching that God's people are they're defined by the fruit that they produce. It's not by their race, not by their ethnicity, not by their political ties, not by their houses, their bank accounts, their cars, or their education but by the fruit produced in faithfulness. That's how God measures His people. That's how He defines His people. It's those that are producing fruit. Not the ones that look good, not the ones that have leaves, but the ones that are making progress. And truth be told, I think that many of our churches have missed the point, just as Israel had missed the point. The Israelites believed that the Messiah would come and that He would cleanse the temple and he would cleanse them of all of the Gentiles, cast them out. But in fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 7, Jesus comes and he clears the temple 
for the Gentiles. Because his house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Well, the religious leaders don't like that. And in verse 18, we're told that the chief priests and scribes heard what Jesus said and started looking for ways to kill him. They were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Now, those are two very different reactions to Jesus. On the one hand, you have rage, enough to want to kill Jesus from the religious leaders. And then, on the opposite end, you have wonder and awe and astonishment from a crowd who sees the authority of the teaching of Jesus. So, what is the lesson of the fake religion that's found in the temple? Well, the temple and all of its splendor and all of its glory, all that promised by looking at it from the outside, was empty. It should have been a place to find living water that would satisfy the soul, but instead was found dry and insufficient. Jesus came to the temple looking for spiritual fruit, but he found none, so like the fig tree, judgment was coming. Fake religion was their condition, and Jesus will curse them forth. Just as he cursed the fig tree, he will curse them at the beginning of chapter 13. Not one brick will remain standing on another. If our Lord did that then to his own people, then what makes us think that he would not do that to us today? Professing the fruit of righteousness and devotion to God could be nothing more than that we are nothing more than dry leaves and fake religion, rituals, and empty professions. Charles Spurgeon, I think, rightly said it. The great majority of persons who have any sort of religion at all bear leaves, but produce no fruit. Plenty of people out there that look like they're doing the right things. All appearances are good. They're producing no fruit. Hypocrisy always means self-deception. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are one thing when actually we are another. And this has never been good in the eyes of God. We see that the fig tree withered the next day as they went back by it. And it was an illustration of the rot and the powerlessness of the temple in chapter 13. And we'll see Jesus pronounce a curse that will be carried out in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. Cyril of Jerusalem said, Beware of fruitlessness, it will be cursed. So what's the answer to this fake advertising, fake religion? It's true faith. In the face of false advertising and fake, fake religion, we have to have true faith. That's what verse 22 tells us. Jesus says, have faith in God. And this is how he begins to conclude his lesson of the fig tree and of the temple. Talking about faith and prayer and forgiveness, the very things that the people should have found in the temple, but it was empty. It's nothing but leaves. It's all show, no substance. We need to put our faith in the right place, and the right place to put our faith is in Jesus. The great missionary Hudson Taylor said, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. Our faith is not in ourselves. I don't look, I shouldn't look at myself in the mirror in the morning and go, you can do it, Chris. You can do it, Chris. You can do it, Chris. 
Our faith shouldn't be in nature. There are many people who think that nature is where it's at. They want to protect it at all costs and do everything they can. We should definitely take care of nature, but nature is not where our faith should be placed. And I get some that will argue with this one, but I also don't think that our faith should be in the church. Going to church doesn't save you. Going to church can help save you, but it doesn't save you. Our faith must be in Christ alone. It's only when we've abandoned everything else and humbly come before God that we find the greatest power. And it's not some hidden power that was deep within us all along that we just needed to uncover. It's the power that the Holy Spirit has worked in us from the moment that we are saved. We deserve the judgment of God, but instead he showed grace to those who didn't deserve it, but instead who sought him in faith. Jesus said that this kind of faith is mountain-moving faith in verse 23. And a mountain-moving faith is a faith that doubts nothing, that believes in the unlimited power of God, and asks the only one who is capable of doing the impossible to do the impossible. And that's God. Only God can do the impossible. Believing prayer is not trying to get God to change his will to our agenda. Instead, this believing, mountain-moving prayer is a passionate pursuit to see the plan of God accomplished in our lives. God's not your cosmic genie waiting to grant your wishes, but he will give you what you need in order to bring glory to his name. Now, as we read this, we realize that the mountain is an exaggeration for effect. At that moment, Jesus said that he was saying this, they were in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was on top of a mountain. And from Jerusalem, you could see the Mount of Olives in the distance. And you could see the Sea of Galilee as well from the mountain in Jerusalem. But this mountain represents something. And it represents what appears to be impossible, what appears to be immovable. Something that is beyond our limited ability to accomplish. We might be tempted to think when we see these kinds of things in our life, when we see those mountains in our life, oh no, what am I going to do? But instead, we should be thinking, awesome. Because that is where our faith begins. Believing faith taps into God's power to accomplish His purpose which always seems impossible to us. Andrew Murray once said, we have a God who delights in impossibilities. Now I was trying to think about this for us today. And I began to think about churches reaching out into their community with the gospel of Jesus. And much of that has been slowed down or stopped altogether because of COVID. And so I thought reaching our community in COVID times seems impossible. It's a mountain, a big one, a challenging one, one that seems immovable and impossible, and it's something that's beyond our limited ability. But we have a God who delights. 
and impossibilities. And what does he say we are to do? To pray, right? Prayer is the power by which the church is able to do its work. And the reason why a church does not have great power is because it does not have great prayer. God moves through our prayers. God moves through our prayers. And so if the, if the mountain of outreach in our community with the gospel during COVID times seems like an impossible, immovable mountain, what should we do? Pray. And God will take that mountain and he'll throw it into the sea and the path will become smooth and flat and straight and we'll be able to follow him wherever it is that he's leading us to go in order to reach our community. He'll give us new ways of sharing the gospel that we never even thought of or dreamed about before. He'll open avenues and doors into our community that we never thought would be open. He'll provide for us spiritually and materially and with resources that we, that we never thought we could ever get. Mountain moving faith. It's about God doing the impossible in our lives and in our community. And since we're talking about churches not having great power because we don't have great prayer, let me shamelessly plug the prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. That's at 6 o'clock. And many of us gather together each Wednesday to pray for these very things and many other things. And I encourage you to come to participate with us in that. With true faith comes true forgiveness. Verses 25 and 26 place a great emphasis on forgiveness. And when we understand how sinful we've been against God and the forgiveness that he has given us, we realize that he wants us to let the forgiveness that we have received from him, he wants that to overflow out of our hearts and spill into the lives of others around us. In fact, he says that an unwillingness to forgive others will be a barrier to your prayers. Think about that. If you have a stubborn and bitter heart and unwillingness to forgive others, no matter what they've done to you, he says, you're just as phony as what he saw in the temple. You're no better than those people. God has forgiven us a great amount. And that's why the beauty of the gospel shines through this passage. Because he's saying that we can forgive other people of the things they've done against us. Because God has forgiven us of so much greater sin than what somebody else has done to us. Jesus died on the cross in our place. It was a death that we deserved so that we could be made right with God and our sins might be forgiven. The great forgiveness that we have received from God is then to be passed on to others. As we begin to conclude this morning, what should we be thinking? After all of this talk, about the fig tree and about the temple and about faith and prayer. A few things come to mind. The first is that Jesus isn't interested in the show. He wants the real thing. Jesus isn't interested in the show. He wants the real thing. 
He came to the center of religious life, the temple, looking for prayerfulness and fruitfulness, and he discovers neither. The barren fig tree is a symbol of Israel, the emptiness of their worship, and it gave the idea, because it had leaves, it would satisfy the hungry heart, but when people got up to it, there was nothing there to satisfy their souls. And it's easy for us to look back on them and say, shame on them. They should have known better, right? We know better, right? Well, don't be too quick to answer that question and be cautious in your answering. Because we need to examine our own selves and our own hearts. Is our faith a facade? Is it a veneer? Do you look good on the outside? You have all the leaves and trimmings of a Christian. You do all the right things in front of people so that they think something about you. But on the inside, when you're alone, you're far from God. You see, that's what Jesus is condemning in this passage. Fake followers. Those who are Christians in name only. They have been transformed on the inside by the incredible power of God's grace. They're putting on a show. But what does it take? Jesus gives us the steps. He says we must have faith in God and in God alone. We must believe that our sins were so bad and that we were so hopeless and that we were so helpless in our sins that God had to send Jesus to die in our place. That on the cross, Jesus took your sins and my sins and he carried the weight of the punishment of millions and millions of sins. And then he died on that cross, that he was buried in a tomb, and that three days later he rose again, proving not only that the sins that he bore for your sake were forgiven, but also proving that he has power over death. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with their heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Being saved isn't just an outward change. You can clean up the outside and look good on the outside, but be empty and dead on the inside. We are doing door-to-door evangelism with the teenagers uh, in my youth group in Clemson. And uh, we were at one end of the street, and it was kind of early on in the year. There was just one tree at the end of the block, and it was just full of leaves. It was incredible. I go, oh, that tree. Well, I wonder what kind of tree that is. I should get one because I like, you know, I like spring. So if spring can come on a little faster because the tree is leaving out early, fantastic, right? And so we're not going to where we get down. Finally, we get to the end of the block. And... And what was going on became very apparent. The tree was dead. It was hollow on the inside. It was rotted out. Branches were falling off of it. But some ivy had overtaken the tree. It had the appearance of life, the appearance of spring, but on the inside it was dead. And the question from our text today 
Is that what we're doing? No. Is that how we're living our lives in this world? And if it is, it's time to repent. Because Christianity is not just an outward change, it's change of our heart, change in our soul. And we can experience that change today. We pray to receive Christ and the forgiveness that He offers. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.